Uh, we had a, a blue slip question uh, last week. So you'll notice on the inside of your notice sheets there's uh, blue slips where you can fill in your details and ask questions and things. And the question was to do with, last week I mentioned we were talking about lies. And uh, I mentioned that lots of the situations we face aren't the sort of Anne Frank uh, situations where you know you, you lie and you risk somebody uh, dying. And the question on the blue slip said, well, what do you do uh, in those sorts of situations? What do you do in an Anne Frank uh, situation? So I just want to say uh, three quick things about that. Uh, first thing I want to state categorically is that lies are always wrong. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let us each one of us speak truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. And Colossians 3, 9, Do not lie to one another seeing you've put off your old self with its practices. So the Bible is really clear that lying is is wrong. And I don't believe that God would put us in a situation where we have to break one of his rules in order to do his will. Because his will is that we obey his rules. That's the, the God that he is. He tells us what to do morally. He doesn't tell us what's going to happen if we do do something or we don't. Um, So we don't have to lie in a situation. God is in control. He will not put us in a situation where we have to lie. That said, uh, we're not always obliged to tell the whole truth to everybody who asks. So, for example, if you come up afterwards and ask me for my PIN number, I'm not obligated by the Bible to tell you what my PIN number is. That's not being deceitful. It's not being awkward. It's just that there are certain things that are private. Uh, If you ask about certain things about my relationship with my wife, I'm quite entitled to keep those things private. I don't have to tell uh, anyone. But I wouldn't lie. Uh, I would just tell you to mind your own business in a nice way. Um, But what about in Anne Frank's case? Um, They would want to know, wouldn't they, whether uh, the state wanted to know whether she was harbouring anyone at that house. Now, here the state has no right to know. It wouldn't be wrong not to tell the state Um, that they were there because the state isn't actually acting in its scriptural mandate to do good. So I'm not saying that you lie to the state in that particular situation, but you're not mandated, you're not forced to tell them the whole truth, if you like, because they're not doing what they should be doing. They're out to kill that person. Anne Frank's captors, oh sorry, not captors, sorry, (laughs) people who are looking after her, are within their rights to avoid the question or misdirect. I think that would be fine. Um, If they were Christians, though, they should still not lie. God, I believe, would have been quite capable of saving Anne Frank uh, without them having to sin. So in the Bible, we do find situations where uh, people do lie. So Rahab lies with um, uh, about the spies that she's harbouring at uh, her home in Jericho. Uh, The Egyptian midwives lie about the children. And both those people are commended for their faith, but they're not commended for their lying. I I completely believe that God could have saved them in other ways uh, if they'd have wanted to tell the truth or just misdirect. So I don't think there's ever situations where we need to lie. I think it's worth, though, saying that that's not an excuse to be brutal with the truth. So sometimes people ask us things, and it is better to think about our motivations in answering them. We can hurt people with the truth as much as we can hurt them with lies. So we're not to be brutal with the truth, but we're to be kind and loving. So the classic example, isn't it? So if your wife says, do I look fat in this? Um, You don't have to be brutal. You can be kind, you can be loving, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to lie. There are other ways of 
expressing uh, if you particularly think that she does look unattractive. In that, I'm, I'm digging myself in a hole here, aren't I? <laughs> but you, you, can, you can do that in other ways, can't you? And actually, wouldn't you want to tell the truth to your partner in that situation? If she's going out and she doesn't, you know? So tell the truth, but do it in a loving way. Okay, that's, uh, that's a blue slip question. If you have any comeback to that or you want to ask another question, do throw in a blue slip and they go in the uh, wooden box at the back. But coming to our passage now, uh, you'll find it helpful to have it open uh, in front of you again. Hosea 14. So I wonder, as we come to the end of the book of Hosea, what shocked you uh, the most? Perhaps it's the shocking imagery of the people of God as an adulterous, unfaithful prostitute. Or perhaps a wayward son, as we saw in the later chapters. Perhaps what shocked you is that Israel has stubbornly refused to repent, even when they've been confronted by God. They think that they can fake it with the God of the universe. Perhaps it's been God's amazing promise of restoration, when we've seen how awful Israel have been. Well, wherever it's been, here in the last chapter, all of these threads come together as the book finishes. It's a bit like one of those Agatha Christie novels, where all the loose ends sort of just get tied up at the end. Well, nearly all the loose ends, but we'll see that uh, right at the very end. But here we get all those images, the, the, the God as uh, father, the God as husband, come together and he finishes with a plea to Israel. So the first plea that he gives is return like a son. That's there in verses 1 to 3. I'll read them to us again. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with balls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. In you, the orphan, finds mercy. The first thing he says to them is, return. Come back, come home. And it's been the message all the way through the book, hasn't it, to Israel. Come back to God. That's what he wants his people to do. The call to return, the call to repent, it's to his people here in the Bible. So it's not to the world out there, if you like. It's to in here. It's to in here, in our hearts. God is calling to us, to his people, to repent. Now, I've got a quote from you that's uh, a bit fitting this Sunday. It's 500 years this week since the Reformation began. And you know that on uh, 31st of October, Martin Luther nailed 95 bits of paper, or 95 theses uh, on a piece of paper to a wall, uh, sorry, doing well this morning, a door in Wittenberg. This was the first thing that he wrote down. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now I know I've quoted that before, but I'm allowed to do it this week because it's the 500th anniversary. But that is what Hosea is telling his people too. It's not just that you do it once. Your whole of your life is repentance. We need to keep turning back to God. We need to keep repenting. And what follows is almost a model prayer of repentance. That's what we see in 2 and 3. Let's take a few moments to see what it says. He tells God to take, or he asks God to take away all iniquity. See that there in verse 2? Take away all iniquity. Not some, all. And Israel has been very good at asking for some of its iniquity to be taken away. The things that it doesn't mind getting taken away, but there's some things that it's clung on to. 
And I think we're the same, aren't we? We're very good at God, to pray to God, aren't we? That uh, get rid of some of our sins. Get rid of other people's sins. But it's often sins that we're not really tempted uh, into anyway. But we must be serious about all our sins. Even as Christians, we can sometimes cherish sin in our hearts. We feel as though we don't quite want God to take away certain sins. Not that one. I, I like that one. It's just a bit of fun. Uh, it doesn't really do any harm. Or take it away, but just not yet. Take it away in a little while uh, when I'm done enjoying it. But actually, here is a model prayer because it's take away all iniquity. We must ask and keep asking God to remove all our sin. And it's an ongoing process, isn't it? Uh, We keep growing in holiness. We keep mortifying sin, killing sin. But what isn't an ongoing process is the removal of the penalty of sin. mustn't get this bit confused. If we've trusted in Christ, the penalty of sin is gone, is done, is dealt with, is finished. God did that as Jesus died on the cross. But we must still repent of our sin. We must still turn from our sin, give it up, kill it. And that part is an ongoing battle. And we need to keep praying for God's help to do that. So he asked that God would take away all iniquity, the penalty, and as well the ongoing battle that we have. The second thing we ask is basically accept this prayer. Now, this part of the verse here in verse 2, accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips, is a little bit confusing. It's probably better to read it like this. Accept what is good, the offering of the fruit of our lips. So accept what is good is a reference to their repentance, what they're actually doing now. The words that they're saying as God is directing them to. Really what they're saying is graciously accept this prayer. And then what follows is, it could be a play on words with bulls and fruit. So bull in Hebrew is far, and the plural is farim. Fruit in uh, Hebrew is feri, and could be pluralized as ferim. So it's either farim or ferim. This will become relevant later, if you wonder why I'm telling you. I don't normally go to the uh, Hebrew, but it does come up later on. But this isn't a request then to accept bull sacrifices. If you remember, all the way through, God has been saying, actually, I've had enough of your sacrifices. I want you to give your hearts. Actually, it's a humble request to accept this prayer of repentance, the fruit of their lips. So again, it's it's a prayer for God to accept what they're bringing to him, this prayer of repentance. And then in in verse 3, we see that what they're saying is, I'm not trusting in anything else anymore. So verse 3, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. Now, for Israel, what they were tempted to trust in was Assyria and Egypt. We saw that in the video, didn't we? We were reminded of that. When Assyria threatened, they would run to Egypt. When Egypt threatened, they would run to Assyria. What they completely seem to have forgotten to do was to run to God. They trusted in their military alliances rather than their God, their saviour. But here, the words that God is giving them to pray says we're giving up on running to Assyria. We're giving up in trusting in Egypt. Egypt was famous for selling horses. They were the sort of military equipment of the ancient world and nearly always would come from Egypt. The implication then is that they're going to trust in God alone. Now this is a tough thing for us to pray, isn't it? If you think about it. 
The reason that we trust in other things is that that seems to make sense. Otherwise, why would you do it? So when you're looking to buy a house, you talk to a mortgage advisor, don't you? That seems to make sense. But do you talk to God? I'm not saying don't talk to a mortgage advisor, but do you talk to God first? When we're ill, do we talk to God first, or do we talk to the GP? I'm not saying here, don't trust in doctors or mortgage advisors. What I'm saying is, where does God come into the picture in these things? Where do we put God in? Do we put God first? Or do we put them into the hands of others? Do we trust in others first before we trust in God? It was the most normal thing in the world in Hosea's day to make military alliances. That was normal. But God's people weren't called to be normal. They were called to put their trust in God. And we as Christians were still not called to be normal, but to be radically transformed from the people that we once were, trusting in other things. Of course, the classic thing that we trust in is ourselves. And nowhere is that more tragic than in our relationship with God. The normal, respectable thing to think is that our goodness is what we should trust in, to be right with God, to be friends with God. If there is a way to heaven, then it's through respectable good works. But the Bible couldn't be clearer that it's nothing of the sort. If we trust in our good works, then we'll be damned. We'll go to hell. No, instead instead our trust needs to be in Christ's work. His death as a sacrifice for our sin. And that is what we're still to trust in as Christians day by day. We're to give up trusting in other things to make us right with God. It's not like, you know, we're to trust in Jesus for our salvation. And then the second we're saved, we stop trusting in Jesus and we trust in our own works and what we do. No, actually, we're still to trust in Christ's death for our right standing before God. Even when we've not done well that day, even when we've had a bad day... Our standing before God is still Christ's death on the cross. So we need to say with them, I'm not trusting in anything else anymore. I'm done with it. I'm done trusting other things that I'm going to trust in Christ alone. The next thing they say is that they're going to give up their idols. So second half of verse 3. And we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. They've got to stop this obsession with idols. We've seen it throughout the book, haven't we? It's been a huge problem for them. And it's sort of an answer to a difficult question. How do you worship an invisible God? Well, their answer was that you make him visible. And while they were at it, they made other gods visible as well. Self-made gods, idols. But it was more than just them making them. It was the fact that they put them uh, in their lives as something to worship. This is how Tim Keller defines an idol. I think it has something to say to us too. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what you only, sorry, to give to you what only God can give is an idol. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that relationship, but perhaps the best one is worship. So that's what he says an idol is, something that 
we put above God, see more important than God. Something that we say that actually this is what gives our life meaning. Now for Israel, that was a plethora of pagan gods and Baals. But for us, it might be our family we put before God. A romantic relationship. Money. Recognition. When we make these things into what our heart is after, then we make them into idols. So whether we're a Christian here this morning or not, we must say, I'm giving up my idols. Because actually Christians hang on to them too. Now that doesn't mean necessarily getting rid of them, though it might. But it more likely means that we need to demote these things in our life to their proper places. Family is good. But it's harmful as an idol. Children are good. But they're harmful as an idol. Money is good. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So as we repent, as we say this, we need to say, I'm giving up my idols. And then lastly, right at the end of the verse, really what they're saying is, give me mercy. So right at the end of verse 3, in you the orphan finds mercy. That seems a little bit of a, a random phrase, doesn't it, to sort of finish it off. It doesn't seem to fit with the rest of it. Orphans haven't been mentioned before in Hosea. And sure, you should be merciful to orphans, but there are other people that God is merciful to as well. So who is the orphan? Who is the fatherless? Well, is it not Israel? Israel who's disowned his father? The mercy that they're asking for, for God to show to the orphan, is the mercy towards themselves. If you remember right back at the beginning, God said, you are not my people. It's almost like putting them away. But they were to return to their father. They were asked to ask for mercy from their father. That's what we saw in the, this last section before we got to chapter 14. So there is hope then for the wayward son. Hope if he will return, just like the prodigal son to the father. He is there with open arms waiting to forgive everything if we will just return and come home. He's merciful to the orphan, the lonely one, which means he's merciful to us. So there's a word here too for us. If we've been wandering, come home. The father waits with open arms. It's like that old hymn, isn't it? Jesus is seeking the wanderers yet. Why do they roam? Love only waits to forgive and forget. Home, weary wanderers, home. Wonderful love dwells in the heart of the Father above. He's saying, come home and enjoy your Father's love. Repent and return to him like a son. But it's not just to Israel as a son that he speaks. He also speaks to them as his bride. Have a look at verses 4 to 8. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. And his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Now I found this passage quite hard uh, this week as I was looking into it. 
Uh, what he's saying is fairly simple, and he's using plant metaphors that seem to make sense. But I just couldn't work out why does he keep referring to Lebanon? Do you notice that three times he says like Lebanon, Lebanon? It sort of makes you sound like you know Jose has just been on a trip there. Have you ever had that situation where somebody's come back from a trip and uh, they sort of say, "Oh, well, that reminds me of that restaurant in Cuba," and "Oh, that reminds me of the night we had in Cuba," and "Oh, that's just like that drink we had in Cuba," and they just talk about it for ages. That's quite annoying, isn't it, when that that sort of things happen? But here, it's not meant to sound annoying. Actually, it's meant to sound romantic. It's more like what he's saying is, it'll be like that time in Paris. You'll smell that like that gorgeous French perfume. You'll be as amazing as French champagne. Our love will be as big as the Eiffel Tower. Because what it's alluding to, actually, is the Song of Solomon. Now, I think this is a first. I don't think I've quoted the Song of Solomon uh, while I've been uh, a pastor here. But if you look on the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there are some verses from the Song of Solomon. See if they seem a bit familiar with what we're looking at here. So, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brandles, so is my love among the young women. Or Song of Solomon 4.11. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Or Song of Solomon 13-15. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruit. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, flowing streams from Lebanon. Or Song of Solomon 2.3. As an apple tree grows among the trees of the forest, so my beloved among the young men. What With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Actually, the reason he's talking about Lebanon is to cast our minds back to this famous love poem, probably the most famous love poem in the world. It's supposed to point us back to that pure, exciting marital love that we see in the Song of Solomon. And this is what's being promised to wayward Israel. A rekindled romance. A second honeymoon that will last into eternity. So what will God actually do? Well, it says, doesn't he, he will heal their apostasy. The problem with Israel has been that even when God has put them on the right track, they just tend to uh, go off the track again. I know I've used the illustration before, but it's a bit like a car with tracking. You know, gradually over time, if you leave it, if you leave the steering wheel, it will veer off. Well, God is saying, I'm going to fix that problem once and for all. I'm going to make sure that you don't veer off again. I'll heal your apostasy. It says that he will love them freely. That word freely there means voluntarily, not under compulsion. This will be a genuine love for his bride. Why? What's changed? Well, it says there, doesn't it? For my anger has turned away from them. Now, do you remember earlier on in the the book, we said that whenever we see God's anger being turned away, we're being pointed to the cross. It's another reminder of Jesus taking God's anger. And God can now love them freely because the barrier of their sin and God's anger has been taken away. So this really is pointing us forward to Christ again. It says he will be like dew to thirsty Israel. In a country where rain was sparse, dew was a source of substance uh, to all sorts of plant life. 
And so he will be their sustenance. He will be their water for their thirst. And in turn, they will blossom like a lily. A lily is a pure, delicate, white flower. It was used to adorn the temple. Uh, So wonderful was it seen in the ancient world. They will grow roots like mighty cedars of Lebanon. The, The cedars were used to provide the framework for the temple. It was something strong and sturdy. So we get this amazing picture of Israel being beautiful and delicate, yet unmovable and strong. This is the Israel that God is promising for the future. So what will happen to Israel? Well, his shoots will spread out. There will be growth. There's a picture of a growing nation. His beauty will be like the olive. I don't particularly find olives beautiful, but apparently they were a, a sign of beauty in the world. His fragrance will be like that of Lebanon. There'll be a fragrant aroma. And this is a wonderful, organic picture of Israel, isn't it? Looking beautiful, smelling good, growing and setting roots down. The foul stench of their sin is done away with. The ugliness of their rebellion is taken away. And the pruning that God has done will result in abundant growth, the likes of which Israel has never known. And what will Israel do? We'll have a look at verse 7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They will flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. They'll come home and live beneath the shadow of God. You see that was a picture there in the Song of Solomon as well, living under someone's shadow, their protection. A place of shade from the hot winds of the desert. They will flourish. That's not the idea of flourishing in abundance, but it's more the idea of flourishing in life. So it's life restored, life that's lived. In some translations it's termed revive, but it doesn't really fit with corn. Corn doesn't really revive. But it's the idea of abundant living, a flourishing life. They're not just going to survive, they will thrive. They won't just be alive, they will live. And they will blossom. Like the vine. A common metaphor for Israel all the way through the Bible. Now often in the Bible it's God just cutting bits off the vine. But here we see the vine is blossoming. Israel is becoming what she was supposed to be. And her fame will spread like the wine of Lebanon. Now I've never had Lebanese wine, I must admit. I did Google it, it's still in production. And it is in fact one of the oldest wine growing areas in the world. They found ships from around 750 BC, that's before this book was written, with wine from Lebanon still intact under uh, in the ship at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. So we know that Lebanon was exporting these things even long before this book was written. We know that it was exported to Egypt too because they wrote about Lebanese wine. So if you like, this is the old world's equivalent of champagne before the French got in on the act. This was the one that everybody wanted. So really what he's saying is that Israel will be the world's Chardonnay. will be the world's carver. Their fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. So who is this talking about? Seems to be talking about Israel, but we've seen, haven't we, that Israel never came back home. We saw two weeks ago that this is first and foremost fulfilled in Christ. This will be seen as he returns, his beauty his majesty, his wonderfulness. But it's also true as the church. 
We are sons of God. We are brides of Christ. So we have begun to have this character now. The healing of our apostasy has started and will be completed on the last day. We will blossom. We will flourish. But for now, there are some things that have happened, aren't there? Our aroma has changed from the scent of death to the sweet perfume of life. God loves us freely. We're beautiful in his sight. We are spreading. We are growing. We're beginning to flourish. We're beginning to blossom. Folks, this is the church we're talking about. So the church is not some dreary, dying houseplant. Actually, it's a thriving, organic organism, growing and blossoming like a vine, beautiful and delicate like a lily, yet strong and stable like a cedar tree, not like a conservative government, just in case you thought I was quoting that. But it means that we shouldn't do the church down. We need to be positive. Yes, we're imperfect, but we're heading in the right direction. God even now sees us as beautiful. And he's seeing that the church flourishes and grows across the globe. So don't do the church down. Actually, it's God's wonderful gift. This is what's promised here in Hosea. And the section ends with pleas and puns. Uh, verse 8. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. So sort of closing the book, he asks them that question again. What have I to do with idols? Don't they realise that God is where all their good things have come from? He's the one who answers their prayers and watches over them. Now that's a bit of a play on words, because those two words are Amat and Asherah, uh, which were two Canaanite gods. He's like saying, I'm the one who actually does what you think they do. I'm the one who watches over you and cares for you. And God is like an evergreen cypress tree. Staying green all year round, producing fruit, which apparently are little cones, a bit like pine cones. But Ephraim needs to realise that God is the source of their fruitfulness. That's what they've been missing all along, not Baal. Now Ephraim means fruitful. So God is saying, I've put the fruit in your fruitfulness. I've put the Ephraim in your Ephraim. That's why it's a bit of a, a pun. God is saying, Actually, I've got a serious point, haven't I? God has given them all that they have. God is going to do this. God is going to turn them into an amazing, blossoming tree. Look at what he offers them if they'll just return. And then our book, more briefly, finishes with a challenge to the reader. Walk in his wisdom. Have a look at verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. As we heard in the video, this is a sort of added bit to the end by whoever put it uh, together. But he's saying this, now you've heard Hosea's prophecy, what are you going to do about it? The ways of the Lord are right, that's what we've seen in the book. The upright walk in them, the wicked stumble in them. What's it going to be, reader? What are you going to do? Are you going to carry on regardless like Israel did? Well, we've seen where that ends. Or are you going to return to God? Are you going to walk with God? Or are you going to stumble? And what makes the difference is how you respond to his word. I said at the beginning, didn't I, that nearly all the ends are tied up. Well, this is the one that isn't tied up. 
What's your response going to be? What's our response going to be to what we've heard? Two options are set before us and they couldn't be more stark. It's life or death. We will live as we walk in God's wisdom. As we do what the book says, as we turn from sin, as we turn from idols, as we trust in God alone. Or we will perish as we stumble and fall. As we carry on as before. As we keep running away from God. As we cling on to our sins. 